Hi, everybody. I'm Matt Bird. I'm James Kennedy. And this is the Secrets of Story podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Secrets of Story podcast. We are putting out episodes more frequently now. We just did an epic three-parter on the rules of Alexander McKendrick. And now we're back because we have a guest. We are very lazy when it comes to guests. We don't go out there and seek out people. We wait until they come to us and people say, hey, we like your podcast and we want to come on in. And we say, great. So then we read their books. And luckily, often their books are great. And I love this guy's book. We have a guest named Brock Swinson. Welcome, Brock. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You have a book called Ink by the Barrel, which is a book about how to, about writing, but also how and when to write and how you can get yourself to write every day is a big part of the book. And I wrote a series on my blog a while ago called How to Write Every Day. And we have been meaning to talk about it for a while. And we figured this is a great chance to talk about writing every day because your book is chock full of good advice. James, have you had a chance to read the book? I have read the book. And here is the um, the great compliment that I can give it. Uh, reading it made me continually want to stop reading it. Um, I, I was just like, why am I reading this book when I should be writing? Uh, um, like, like it, it kept inspiring me to stop reading the book. I, I think anybody who takes this book seriously will not be able to make it through it. Um, like you, 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 like I, I'm, I was continually feeling like I, I needed to, to start writing and it was very inspirational in that way. In, in many ways, it's the opposite of Matt's book because Matt's book is all like about the nuts and bolts and the rules of writing and the specific rules. And this one is more of kind of like cheering you on and motivating you and giving you all these ways to develop habits to write every day and getting you kind of impatient with yourself to do it. And so I think like reading Brock's book and reading Matt's book is a good one-two punch for every, any writer because they address two very different things, but two things that need to be addressed. Yeah, I had some more elements like Brock's book in my book originally, but we decided to refocus the book in another area and those elements sort of fell out. But there's certain things our books have in common. Writing is rewriting is a big part of both books and kicking yourself in the ass a little bit, I think, is a little element of both books. But Brock, why don't you tell us about your book and how you came to write it? Yeah, I definitely appreciate the, the compliments. That's the first I've heard that, but it, it was kind of written that way. There is, of course, a flow to it, but it's also written so you can almost turn to any page and there's some nugget there that's meant to kind of be inspiring or motivational or just instill discipline, which I think is the real end goal. But this comes from, uh, I kind of started writing it during the pandemic. I had done, now I've done well over 400 episodes of Creative Principles, the podcast I host where I've talked to people like Aaron Sorkin and Ethan Hawke and uh, all kinds of great, mostly screenwriters, but also authors and, and uh, sports columnists and chefs and musicians and all types of creatives. And also from just reading a ton of books, especially people like Ron Holiday that have kind of perfected their systems. So I broke this book into three parts, time, voice, and process. That kind of made the most sense to me. And it's really meant to be the book I needed like 10 years ago. And just quickly, like the title is, uh, Ink by the Barrel, Secrets from Prolific Writers. Ink by the Barrel is a is an old saying falsely attributed to Mark Twain. It was actually a congressman who said, you never quarrel with a man who buys his ink by the barrel. Uh, I'm kind of spinning that a little bit to say you should be the type of writer who buys their ink by the barrel. You should be prolific. Um, you should be someone. And I really believe that you kind of find quality writing through quantity. Yes. That's another thing we have in common, I think. And I think that is excellent advice. And I love, I had heard of the ink by the barrel quote in terms of 19th century politics, but I loved repurposing it for this use. So yes, I suppose we did not do, James always yells at me that I don't do real good introductory bios for people. And I once again did not for you, but yes. So you were a writer for many years for Creative Screenwriting Magazine, which I was a religious subscriber to. And was a wonderful magazine and now has spun off into a podcast, which you are the host of. And that is uh, a wonderful thing. And you have gotten to talk to so many great people. And that comes through loud and clear in this book where you are. It's fascinating the number of people who pop up as advice givers in this book. This book is very heavy on quotes. You are gathering advice from all sorts of smart people and deploying it in new and original ways to talk about writing advice. We're going to focus on the first part of your book, time, rather than the next part of your book, voice, or the next part of your book, process. And 
I went ahead and pulled my favorite quotes, of which there are just a ton. Yeah, there are a lot of quotes. There's like about two quotes from somebody else on every page. And could you tell us like how you came upon this structure for the book, like making it very quote heavy in this way? Yeah, it's kind of like, so Ron Holiday does a version of this. He definitely tells more stories in his work. And I'm talking more of his his more recent work. He goes to enemy and books like that. But it also kind of gives you, I like to think of it as borrowed authority. Some of that is just me instilling confidence in myself if I'm relying on a hundred other great writers as I kind of connect their ideas, like you said, there's maybe two quotes on every page. I'm filling in idea to idea. I do think maybe a special skill set I have is there's a book called Range kind of on this. But if I learn something from a chef, I can usually relate it back to writing. Or if I hear a fitness person talking about something, I can usually relate that back to writing. So I'm really just like connecting ideas. The other thing, which some people have probably heard of, is Ron, Card- Ron Holiday used a note card system. So like right now I'm writing my next book. I'm literally just like, I read every day. I listen to podcasts every day. I write down quotes. I throw them in a pile at the end of probably a year or more. I'll start to organize those in a way to write the next book. And I just, I kind of have a North star, but just reading that way lets me get to it. I'll throw away or not use for that one, you know, 20% of those note cards. Yeah. But some of that is, is kind of going back to what I said, it's just like confidence using barred authority, using the people I've talked to, to kind of make a name for myself. That's kind of how I see it. And a little more background on me. I've been in marketing for like 10 years. I've been a ghostwriter on like 10 books, but always in someone else's voice. So it's kind of the first time really stepping out and like, well, this is me as a writer. This is kind of what I believe. Well, here's a question. Matt and I disagree on this podcast all the time, vehemently, but we're both kind of doing the same thing. And so did you find that all of these quotes and borrowed authority converged upon one kind of consensus or orthodoxy? Or did you find parts in which like people kind of disagreed about the creative process and you had to either kind of finesse that so that it does seem to all converge to a consensus or try to depict that? I would say more so in the other direction, like I've even talked about, I'm not sure if I actually wrote this in the book, but like, I, I think I've, I've definitely told this on some podcasts, like some of these ideas may like go against clash against each other. Yeah. And some of that's because like, you're not the same writer your whole life. If, and like, if our, everyone's end goal is to be prolific, I see that as like, when I talk about people on my podcast, I'm talking about creativity and productivity to me, that equals being prolific. Right. So that's your end goal. So who you are today is probably not going to be the same writer you are in 20 years from now. You're going to be pretty stale. So I like to ask a lot of people who come on the show, what were your false beliefs about your career? And then they'll tell me that like, I was so sure about this. Like I just talked to uh, Paul Lieberson who played Toby on the office. He's a screenwriter as well. When he first started, he said, I was sure that the best ideas would rise to the top. And now he knows very obviously that like you need to be the type of person who it's got a great script. You've got people attached. You've got a director and you're showing that you're the type of writer to see this through to the very end and get it made. So there's a lot of that that kind of changes. So I'm very open with yeah ideas clashing that that definitely you need to find what works for you. What happens when you have two authorities that both seem to be have a good point and uh and and you, you want to give them both their due. Like not that somebody realized that they were wrong with their earlier advice, but like there are two paths or more than two. Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest one, there's a YouTube video somewhere of George R. R. Martin arguing or talking to Stephen King, right? Okay, I was trying to nudge you towards this. Yeah, so, so <laughs> sure. you wrote about this in your book, so I was hoping you would say this. Okay, go on. Yeah, yeah. so I, I compare it to, and it's really, it's like, okay, whose shoes can I step into? And almost like, I'll give you a little, let me give a little backup a little bit. So Elizabeth Gilbert writes about the tortured martyr and the playful trickster. The playful trickster has fun. They sit down, they love the blank page. They can just get going. Stephen King talks about this. I think he writes like six pages a day, every day, no matter what. George R. R. Martin, it takes him six weeks or so to write the same amount of content. Stephen King is the playful trickster. George R. R. Martin is the tortured martyr. Now, if you're, I keep kind of coming to this conclusion though, like I kind of would believe more in Stephen King early on, but also, you know, when you're, when you're like a teenager, you're like, I want to be Tarantino and break in with one script. I want to be, you know, J.D. Solinger and write something like Catcher in the Rye. 
you're setting yourself up for failure. That's kind of how I see it. So while I do talk about both of those, I kind of think like, all right, if you are in the same mindset as Stephen King, which is so few people, even less that I've actually met or talked to, um, you're probably not even listening to my podcast or reading this book uh, anyway, right? I've often said that about this podcast. Actual <laughs> creative people probably don't have any need for it. Right, uh, right. <laughs> uh, so, okay, so they, so when you do find that there's a, a difference of opinion, you, 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 there is a, you, you do come out down on one side or the other. You come down on the Stephen King side and not the George R. R. Martin side for, or, or in terms of like advice that you think would be useful for others. Yeah. I mean, at least in that case, for sure. So the two, the two of those is like, do you write straight fiction or do you outline? That's kind of how I see the difference in those Mm -hmm. two. I thought one example where your advice was clashing with my advice and both seem like, and it seems like it's hard to choose between them is in your chapter four, you say, as you start to defy self-sabotaging instincts, your critical inner voice will start to silence itself. If you don't feed the inner critic, it will be too weak to speak. And you're talking about like, that's good how like the way to write every day is to silence your inner critic and i was sort of giving opposite advice and i was saying like when you write you will gotta listen to what miles davis said and miles davis said i don't pay no attention to what critics say about me the good or the bad the toughest critic i got is myself and i'm too vain to play anything i think is bad and i talk about how and so i what i take from that is I say that professional writers don't have a magical formula and none of them are born with a natural mastery of every separate skill a writer needs and they don't have access to some secret wellspring of inspiration that you can't tap into. Anyone who wants to become a good professional writer can do so, just do these two simple things. One, write three pages of manuscript every day, day after day, year after year, whether those pages are good or bad. And two, after you write them, be aware of how good they were. And so so I say that you do want to rely on your inner critic and if you need to write it bad so that you can write it good. So I say at the end, this is where 99.99% of writers wreck themselves. They're unwilling to be bad and feel bad about it until they can become better. They're unwilling to be like Miles. If you can master the art of working every day, even though it often makes you feel bad, then you'll make it in this business. Just try it. My favorite bit from your book was, as you've already said, the martyr versus the trickster. And I think that one of the big debates that writers have is not should you write every day, which everybody agrees that you should, but should you enjoy writing every day? And this is something that you have sort of conflicting quotes about in your book is, do you get better writing from feeling good about what you're writing? Or you've got a quote here, easy choices make a difficult life, difficult choices make an easy life. It says, in the book Big Magic, author Elizabeth Gilbert refers to two journeys a would-be writer can take to have become a half-written author. One is the dreadful and painful step every step of the way. The other path is playful and fun every step of the way. Gilbert refers to these two journeys as the path of the tortured murder or the playful trickster. I can make my creativity into a killing field, or I can make it a relatively interesting cabinet of curiosities, reasons Gilbert. She believes ideas are looking for outlets, and it's actually possible if you fail to act on an idea, it will move on to someone else. So I really love this idea, but you have, at times, people are saying that if the writing is too easy, that then you're doing it wrong. And if you're having too much fun, then you're doing it wrong. (laughs) Do you feel like those those ideas can be reconciled. It's funny because like, I feel like I, you know, relating it to exercise and stuff like that, like it is like exercise generally kind of sucks. Right. But you feel better afterwards. And a lot of writing is like that. So I think a lot of the stuff you just said, I just kind of see it as like an extended timeline. So what I mean by that is like, you have to have discipline to sit at the desk every day. It's odd because it's like, you're, you're saying when you're mind is saying, sleep in, don't do the work, don't do this. You have to ignore those feelings. But ironically, as a writer, you have to be engaged with your feelings. So it it is definitely like a tightrope. So I think like part of it, like the literal physical act of writing that requires discipline, the, you know, the mind to the fingers to the keyboard, that is more you relating to some of your feelings. But then the other part of that is, I think what I was truly saying, when you talk about the inner critic is you have to separate the writer from the editor in your mind. Otherwise, you're just not, generally speaking, the way I find it, I'm not getting anywhere. I feel like when George R. R. Martin talks about that, he's going back to the, the last line over and over and over. And it's perfect. And if you're a poet, that's amazing. But if you're trying to write thousand word novels, I just don't see that happening. Now, in a perfect world, you know, you're getting paid tons of money for your fiction you can just write freely, not worry about editing, have an amazing editor to work with, but that's not the case for most people. So what we're kind of forced to do is separate those two parts of the mind and like almost like wear different hats. Like 
Now I'm writing kind of freely, maybe freehand. I'm coming back later to edit. I might even do them in separate environments. I'm running one in my office. I'll move in the kitchen on the laptop and edit or something like that. Or recently I've been really, I really like to use physical paper. I'll write mm-hmm. some on my computer, I'll print it out and then kind of cross through it. It's like an extra step, but the same as the note card system, like I like it, I need it. It kind of moves me forward. It feels like you're going backwards, but it actually kind of pushes me forward. Well, it's good to physicalize things, both in the scenes that you write, but also in your own life. When something's on a screen, it's kind of you know amorphous. Like I wrote my first novel mostly in longhand. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, the process of typing it in forced me to edit it again. And then the process and printing it out and then editing it then like forces another step. Um, but yeah, I think you're right. Like there, there's just, Matt, maybe you're just collapsing two steps of like when you're actually producing the work, you, you want to turn off your editor. And then once it's produced, then you can go and look at it with a critical eye and put on that different editor hat. Is that what you're saying, Brock? Yeah. And some of that might just be time. Like, like I wrote, I wrote the first draft of this book in 2020 and I kind of set it aside for a period of time. Yeah. It's crucial. You know, and I came back and then it's like, then you can be harsh, you know, and then that's when you should be harsh. I think. Yeah. Time is a great uh, editor uh, uh, because you you just become a different person that you can look at it with a different eyes. At one point I say on my blog that write it and then go ahead and set it aside for a while. But I say, don't just set it aside on your desk, leave it out in your backyard to get rained on and (laughs) trampled on. Then you bring it inside and see what has survived it getting soiled by the outside and then see if you can find something useful in it. Yeah. I mean, I feel like it's really hard to write without having a sense of what you're writing is good or bad. I think that you have to, like Miles Davis, he said he's too vain to play anything he thinks is bad. And it's very hard to not be too vain to write anything that you think is bad. And yeah, I disagree. This is like Dan Harmon like said, like if if you're if his writing advice is like writer's block doesn't exist. The reason that you're a, a, you think you have writer's block is because you're afraid of being a bad writer. So go ahead, prove you're a bad writer. Go write something bad. You, you go prove to yourself how bad you are, and that will get you through it. If if you are vain while you're producing, you're not going to produce anything. But yeah. you think otherwise, Matt? No, I I basically agree with Dan Harmon on that. I I think Miles Davis is wrong. I mean, I, well, I think it may oh, just okay. be okay. different. I think it may just be different doing jazz or doing writing. But it's uh, you know, you can't. Uh, it's <laughs> hard to go back and write. It's harder to go back and edit a jazz than it is to go back and edit <laughs> writing. But it's it's very very hard. I think we're getting at you know silencing your critical inner voice is very, very hard. I really like, I was not a fan of the movie Man of Steel. I did not think that was a well-made movie, but you go back to the movie Man of Steel and you find a very powerful metaphor in it. And a scene that, you know, you make a good case is actually a very good scene. And I watched the movie, it didn't seem like a great scene to me, but I'm like, you took a lot of meaning and power out of this scene where young Clark Kent is overwhelmed by his senses once his superpowers kick in. And he ends up hiding in a closet, scared, trying to block out his senses. And then his mother comes to him and he says, the world is too big. And she says, then make it small. And you talk about how one of the most valuable things a writer can do is make the world small. Uh, chapter five is called Make Your World Small. And then that's that's a fascinating idea to me. Could you talk about making the world small? Yeah. I mean, it just kind of like, it lets you get going. So, I mean, one metaphor I've kind of heard is like, you tell somebody, Hey, name like 10 things in your house that are the color white. They can probably do that. But if you say name like 10 things in your fridge that are white, it's easier. So the more specific you get, the more you know what you're going to do. One of the first conversations I had about screenwriting, and I went to school to learn screenwriting. But then when I got the job for a creative screenwriting magazine, I was living in LA at the time. I'm going to go meet this guy. I learned more in 40 minutes talking to this guy named Blake Masters and I learned probably in four years of college. And I think at the time I was writing characters that are like, okay, here's like 10 or 20 things that are cool about this guy and I'm going to cram them together and that's who he is. And he kind of just said, well, no, it's just like he believes this one thing and then that, then it unravels from there. And because there's this one thing, so that's kind of what it is. Like make your world so small. I do the same thing with my writing. It's like when I get up in the morning, I know who I want to be as a writer. I have the same thing. Like if I'm writing a story, the theme is so much more important than the plot for me. I know what I want to write about. And you see that like over and over um, 
I don't know, like Parasite came out, won the Oscar, but that was probably his eighth film or so about class warfare. All of Tarantino's movies are 70s inspired revenge movies. So when you find this like really specific thing, you just kind of go towards that. I think this original idea, I, I actually have the lyrics because it's, it's Jack White's shortest song as far as I know. It's like 50 seconds. And just writes about being in your little room. And I it's think funny. It like, yeah, I love, yeah. I went ahead and copied that you had that Jack White song. It's funny because when I first heard of the White Stripes, it's like the lamest way to discover a band is through NPR. And I listened to, <laughs> I listened to a review on NPR and they were reviewing this new album, White Blood Cells by the White Stripes, who I'd never heard of. And they're like, I'm going to do something I rarely get to do in an NPR music review. I'm going to play an entire song. And he said, I'm going to play the entire song, Little Room. And yeah. I had forgotten how great these lyrics were and how applicable they are to writing, especially in something we've been talking about in our last couple of episodes about retroactively pantsing your work and how if you're a planner, then you have to some, you know, if you pants your way through the first draft, then you have to plan your way through the second draft. But if you plan your way through the first draft, you have to find some way to retroactively pants yourself through the second draft. And that's exactly what Jack White is talking about here. He says, when you're in your little room and you're working on something good, but if it's really good, you're going to need a bigger room. But when you're in your bigger room, you might not know what to do. You might have to think of how you got started sitting in your little room. And that's the entire song. And yeah. that's exactly what retroactive pantsers have to do. They're in a bigger room now, and they might have to think of how they got started sitting in a little room. They might have to you know, somehow recapture the inspiration of having less. <laughs> and, uh, and I love that you apply that to writing. Yeah, I think, you know, making your world small will get you started. It'll get, get let you finish your next book or screenplay or whatever. But also, once you make it, making your world small will let you continue kind of being who you are. You want to grow, but you don't want to grow into some generic mass audience type thing. You still want to be the person you were back then. I think it's the, you know, that's what we all strive for anyway. And you see creatives who do it, and it seems so hard to do. Yes. Well, you talk about not following the market, which is another thing that we both talk about a little bit. But, you know, I know, James, you were saying that you had written a children's book that you really love, and you were told by your agent, who you also really love, Brock, you say, ignore what the market is looking for and write something personal for yourself. Repetition, big reward. James, you do not write what the market is looking for, I think, to a certain extent. You let the market come to you. Then sometimes that bites you in the ass, and you write, I really like the middle grade book that your agent didn't like. And he says, you have no idea how far away this is right now from what is dominating the children's market. Yeah. How do you, did that make you feel like, oh, I should have written more for the market? Or how did that make you feel? It didn't make me feel like I should have written more for the market because I think the, the, the thing that saved me is I had a bunch of other stuff I had also written. And so he was able to sell that. And ironically, the stuff that he was able to sell was stuff that I thought was completely unmarketable. Like, uh, and, and like, I was like, oh, I'm just writing this for myself that he was able to sell. Um, and the, the thing, the middle grade book, I, that was also very personal, but I thought, oh yeah, th this will sell. And it didn't, or at least he didn't think it could, but I think there's a couple of things you could do. Wait a couple of years, that book will still be written and it'll be in my drawer and it can come back out or get big enough that people will eventually just want to publish whatever I've written or, 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 or just like take Brock's advice and always have a lot of different irons in the fire, which is what I did. I was, like I first submitted that middle grade book to him and he said, this is well done, but I don't think I can sell this. What else you got? And I gave him another thing and he was like, okay, we'll try to sell this. And it didn't sell. And he said, okay, so what else you got? And I gave him the thing that was like the weirdest thing I'd written. He said, oh, I can sell this. And then he did. And then he eventually sold the thing that he couldn't sell. And then maybe he can sell eventually the thing that he says he can't sell. Yeah. The secret is just to keep writing and have a lot of stuff written that you can say, oh, that wasn't what you're looking for. Well, how about this? Well, that's another big debate that writers have that I think both Brock and I fall on the same side of. And I'd be interested to know where you fall, James. And that is like, should you be working on multiple projects at the same time? And I generally I say yes in my series on how to write every day. And Brock, you basically say yes as well. Not quite as unqualified as I do. Brock, how do you feel about working on multiple projects? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, I can't, I don't know. I feel like you're setting yourself up for failure if you're trying to write some perfect whatever. I think you're really setting yourself up for failure if you're just trying to write this one thing and make it perfect. Like that is almost like impossible. I probably do best with three to five things. Uh, so like right now as an example, I'm making my first documentary. I'm the writer, the director, editor, 
I do interviews, there's a ton of stuff, but that's kind of a different creative outlet than the other stuff I do. I'm also a copywriter. I'm ghostwriting a book with somebody. When I say I'm writing another book for myself, I'm just kind of throwing note cards in a pile. So I'm almost like not even counting that. That's something for like much later. I'm working with a screenwriting coach because this documentary is so specific. And he's kind of to add to something you just said, I've got four or five screenplays I've written. Um, he's encouraging me to write one more and then to use two of those that are most similar to the same genre of the, of the documentary I'm making. And just because like, you're going to get in those meetings, they're going to say, what else you got? And you want to have something kind of similar. And obviously what, what worked for you was like your most personal thing, which I think is, is a pretty common story, but yeah, I just really like a, a ton of stuff kind of, kind of going on three to five seems to be the sweet spot for me, at least. I think in order to finish a novel. I have to have at least some time, which I'm working exclusively on that novel because I'm in the total mindset of it. But I often have other projects going on that are not a novel. Um, yeah. Like I, I, there's this film festival that I run for children and that takes up some creative time uh, or, or, or stuff like that. But I'll have another thing going on, but it won't be the same kind of thing. Yeah, I say in my blog post, writing a few pages of another project is helpful in multiple ways. It buoys you out of that sinking sensation and allows you to start fresh on new challenges. It reminds you that not, that not everything is writing on your main project, so it can be what it needs to be instead of being all things to all people. It allows you to move that big project to the back of your mind, but it keeps the muscles working that need to, that you'll need to solve it which makes it more likely that you'll have that eureka moment when a solution for the supposedly forgotten problem suddenly flashes into your head. If you take days off to just think about the main problem, it's more likely that you'll forget it entirely. So I'm definitely a fan of working on multiple things, but it's hard. It's hard not to. The problem is that I fall in love. Potential is more attractive than reality. And you're like, <laughs> if I just start a new project every day for 30 days, that then they're all exciting. <laughs> and I never get anything written. Yeah, I mean, I, I do a couple things to, to kind of combat that. Like, so I've got investors on this documentary. I've got a date set for episode one. It's an eight, eight, eight episode series I'm working on the next like year and a half. So I've got a date set for that. That's some accountability. I've got an assistant I work with. So I'll say, hey, we're going to meet on Monday. I'm going to have this ready. Like I'm almost paying someone a small amount to work for me. So <laughs> it creates accountability within me. Uh, and then all, all the other stuff is like deadlines for people I'm working with and Whenever you can have just some third party accountability there, I found it so hard to just truly, you know, put complete faith in myself. Like I've heard Seth Godin say, he never breaks a promise to himself. Haven't quite got there yet. I'm definitely working on that. So these are almost like, you know, the, the kitty lanes in bowling that kind of help you just stay aligned. But you definitely just don't want like, you don't want a bunch of zeros on the board or the equivalent of that. You don't want to sit there and have not have done anything for several days. Uh, th this coach is kind of, keeps encouraging me to think a little bit simpler. So like what that means is like, I have a bad mental day. If I have a list of 10 things and I just stare at it all day and don't get them all done. Cause that's ridiculous. It's too many. But if I know that like every day I can probably get three important things done and some of that's writing, some of it's other stuff. So then that means, okay, so that three a day, you know, I can probably do 90 in a month. And what I've done recently is like, I'll print out, you know, 50 things I plan to do that month on paper. And uh, the rest of them, I have a certain number of openings and then everything has to be like, okay, is what I'm writing down as important as what I promised I would get done this month. And if it's not, it doesn't go on the page. And there's a, a variety of like, these things make money. These are passion projects. This might make money later. There's a variety of that happening, but you really have to understand what you're capable of, but also the minimum and maximum that you can actually complete. Yeah. Yeah. I, th I think that's important. And also like when you're saying like all these impressive things that you're doing at once that also might have a, the effect of chiseling into your unstructured time, which is like the true creative time. And I think this is a way for us to talk about, um, there's this idea that's been going around and you talk about it in your book about the maker's schedule versus the manager's schedule. Mm -hmm. And as you were talking just now, you said, you said like you're very talk much talking from like a managerial point of view. Like, because you, you have to manage all these different projects. Can you first tell me like what the difference is between the maker's schedule and the manager's schedule, and then kind of talk about how you negotiate that when you have so many different things going at once? Yeah, I mean, so the manager's schedule is the schedule the world is on. If you buy a planner or an agenda, it's broken up in 30-minute increments, so you end up just saying yes to a bunch of stuff that don't really matter. The maker's schedule, you know, as you both know, 
you need probably three or four hours to get anything done you, to really start writing, even because you're staring at a blank page for a period of time or, or whatever it is that you're doing. To, to combat some of that, I'll probably, I'll think of being a maker early in the mornings. I think it has to be before the world is awake or after the world's gone to bed. Mm. We have a one-year-old now, so that oh, puts congratulations. More, yeah, that puts even more oddities to it, right? So I'll get up at like four or five in the morning. I'll do a quick workout. I'll work on one of my three creative projects, whatever is the most like, this really needs my focus for a period of time. Then I'll give myself up to like two or three hours to work on that, depending on the day, you know, if my wife's home or not home or some of those things. Um, but then there's just kind of a variety to it. And then later in the day, so that's, I like to kind of think of that as like creative output. Later in the day, you'll put out fires, be more of a manager. I mean, some of that's inevitable. Yeah. The, the, uh, the, the best time of my life creatively was when I was living in Japan and I had this job teaching English at this high school, but they didn't want me to teach any classes. They just wanted to have a foreigner around to talk to. And so I just had this little office and I was like finishing up and editing my first novel. And I just got to spend like, I would come into work, say hi to everybody. I go into my office, I spent eight hours a day. And this is before the internet had anything interesting on it. Just kind of like chiseling away and learning how to write and edit like my first novel. And like just the absolute luxury of having all that time was fantastic. Yes. And I had to be there. It was enforced. Like they, 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 I couldn't like go around and experience Japan. I had to be at work in this office with a lot of other Japanese teachers who like didn't want to talk to me. Actually, they were all afraid of me and like students who would talk to me and then run away. And so I was isolated anyway. It was a gift and it's probably something I'll never have again. Well, in terms yeah. of the manager yeah. versus maker, you say, Brock, here's a thought catapult to help you get started. Whenever you schedule anything, a phone call, a face-to-face meeting, a lunch date, it's literally giving away a piece of your life. That's what time is. Little chunks of your life laid out in 60-second intervals. You say the success intersection actually arrives faster because you're moving 20 steps in one direction rather than one step in 20 directions. You say Bill Gates said that most people overestimate what they can do in one year and underestimate what they can do in 10 years. You say Stephen R. Covey, quote, most of us spend too much time on what is urgent and not enough time on what is important. So then you're talking about scheduling writing time, defending writing time. Your first chapter is called Defend Your Time. But then sort of getting to what we were saying earlier, you then a couple of chapters later, you say that Neil Gaiman describes his writing process this way. I'm allowed to do anything I like as long as it isn't anything. This is when he's got set aside writing time. What I love about it is that I'm giving myself permission to write or not write, but writing is more interesting than doing nothing after a while. It's a solid role for writers. You don't have to write. You have permission not to write, but you don't have permission to do anything else. So yeah. he is setting aside time that he has to either write or do nothing, and he's allowed to not do anything, but writing is more interesting than doing nothing, which is not something I've ever tried. I hate the blank page. Like I <laughs> hate staring at a blank page. I love outlining. I love outlining future projects. It is my favorite thing to do. Second favorite thing to do is actually writing scenes, which is much, much further down the list. And by far, my third favorite thing to do is stare at the blank page, which I hate more than anything. I've never tried what Neil Gaiman describes here of giving myself more permission to just stare at a blank page, which it sounds like what he's doing. Yeah, I recently did a, a challenge with like, I had a thousand people sign up. It was a 30 day prolific challenge based on this book. I said that Neil Gaiman quote probably five times during the challenge, but I really want people that's it's kind of more for people who just can't make the habit. I like to think of it going back to what I just said, if I'm talking about, I've only got a few hours to be creative. There's no other time the rest of the day where it's ensured that I'll be able to do it. I might be able to, but probably not just with everything else going on. I kind of do like a blank page prep. I'm showing up with outline. I've got quotes. I've got an idea. I'm not like sitting down at my valuable time just to write or be creative and have no idea what the hell I'm doing. So I kind of think it a little bit different like that. Um, and yeah, people just, you know, people are so willing to throw away small bits of your life. Every time someone asks you to do something, you feel obligated to do it. We wouldn't throw away a big chunk of our life. We're so careful with money, but people just don't really care about their time. And honestly, if I get up and do these things, like I might be done with my whole day by 8 a.m. At the latest, I'm done at like noon. And then I don't care so much. Then I've got another eight hours to be with the world, do things that my family need, do things that my employers need. You know, I mean, it's, it's asking a lot possibly, but like I know where I want to go with that. I like something I think James just said too about like that. I think you were in, said you were in Japan 
Ron Holiday calls that a live time versus dead time. So you were using that time well, even though you could have done nothing. So I think it's so important to, to see those moments and then kind of like capture them and work within those moments. It's, it's always been my dream to have jobs like that. And I've always bent almost every single job I've had to be that kind of job. <laughs> that can't have gone well. It, it went well. Like I was a big believer in like relentlessly gold bricking every job I had <laughs> and using the printer at work for my own projects. And like, I don't think you could do this anymore because now like at mid-level white collar jobs, they like track your mouse movements and your keyboard use and stuff like that. It's very dystopian. But in the glory days, I remember I got this job, just a quick detour. One of my first jobs out of college was that I was a temp at uh, Sally May in Washington, D.C. And they, they put me in this cubicle, and it was this deserted wing of Sally May. And I didn't know who my boss was. And I just sat in this cubicle day after day and nobody told me to do anything. And um, how do you and, keep finding these jobs? James? I don't know. And, and, and so I, I was writing, and I, um, my, I, my, my housemate Chris, uh, Heather's brother, gave me uh, this one thousand page book called Morrissey and Marr: The Severed Alliance, <laughs> the History of the Smiths. I devoured that. I had a fax machine, and one time I got a fax, and I unplugged it. And I lasted like two more months on that job before they realized. So I was in that job for about seven months and it was incredible. Um, you, could, you could be a very specific headhunter. You find people jobs just like that, <laughs> not about the money or whatever. I, I, had a, I had a sales job before I went riding full time. And yeah, if I was alone on the weekends, I was leasing apartments. I would be printing out full screenplays just yep. to have them, read them in my place. I would do like, I interviewed Aaron Sorkin on my lunch break in my car. Cause I was just like, <laughs> I got to get out of here. You know? So I was always trying to get out. I think that's wonderful. Yes. It reminds you what's important in life too. Like, I don't know if you could do this as much anymore because everybody's time is much more surveilled, but from the mid nineties to 2011, my advice is relentlessly gold brick. Yeah. I think a lot of people going back to what we said earlier, like things you can disagree with it kind of like what fits you the best. Right. So uh, Bill Watterson, the created Calvin and Hobbes, famously kept his job well into being famous, and he could have went full-time way sooner. Ron Holiday was the same way. Then there's people like a lot of actors. I've, I've talked to Thomas Shane, the actor. Um, I've heard Arnold Schwarzenegger and different people say, like, no plan B, no plan B, no safety net. If you're putting energy into plan B, you're taking it away from plan A. It's hard to argue with either one of those. I think it's like the type of person you are. Yeah. Generally for me, I'm, I'm kind of more of a cut the safety net, but that's not always the case. And then like, what point are you, of your life are you in? There was things I could do when I was 20 and bouncing around LA with like a thousand dollars in my bank account that I can't do now with a family, mm -hmm. obviously, you know? Yeah, there was, I remember a couple of years ago, there was like a public school in Texas where they brought in a motivational speaker, you know, to give like a valedictory to the kids or something. And it was someone going like, here's how you succeed in life. You got to have no plan B. Be totally focused on your one plan for success. And the kids just totally rebelled. And it became a national news story where they're like, this is terrible advice to black kids. This is terrible ah. advice to kids like us. You know, we need yeah. a plan B. There's so many things that are stacked against us in life that if we don't have a plan B, that's going to be terrible for us. And how dare you? And yeah. it was, I was like, go, good for you, kids. Good for you. <laughs> Standing up to this dude who is giving you terrible advice. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm all about the plan B. My life is my, is my plan B. <laughs> Writing advice books was not, was not plan A for me. I think it worked out well. You were talking before about, I don't want to turn blue here. I don't know how you feel about using foul language, Brock. You don't do it in your book, but you were saying you always ask writers, how did what is happening now differ from your original plan as a writer? I say in my How to Write Every Day series about how my original plan as a writer was I was going to graduate from Columbia, then I was going to move to LA. I was going to work for five years making millions of dollars in LA, <laughs> and I was going to make my fuck you money, which is what right. they called it. And then I was going to make my fuck you money and then leave after five years and just be rich the rest of my life. This was my whole plan. And I say that if that's your plan, then they're going to end up with the money and you're going to end up with the fuck you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm 35 now. I definitely re planned to retire five years ago when I was a kid. You know, that was definitely the idea. But now I'm like, I, I doing the doing the stuff like this. Like, I'll I'll never retire. And most of the things I thought when I was even a teenager in my early 20s, like everything I do today, these jobs didn't really exist when I was in high school. So how the hell would I have known I'm going to do that when I get older? You know, I think it's more like. I know the direction I want to go in. I have to be very flexible in how I get there. 
and then assume kind of the worst, assume the timeline is going to be longer. But if you're, you know, if your goal is just to be prolific, it doesn't really matter what the timeline is. Eventually you will kind of get that success. Yeah. Brock, you talk about the four steps. One, idea creation and research stage. Two, write and unload stage. Three, revise and edit stage. And four, market and promote stage. And I was thinking about how, Matt, you and I did a episode of the podcast, which Jonathan Oxier came on, and he had like three stages, uh, which kind of like, it, it might be interesting to compare and contrast these three stages because Matt, uh, uh, Jonathan was saying, uh, when you're writing something, first you write it for yourself. Uh, like you're just kind of like writing the thing that, you know, is like the true expression of like the, the thing that you want to put out into the world. And then you do an edit and you write it for the story, like to make the story seem coherent. And actually, it's not just like a, a, a dream state thing that you kind of blurted out. It's kind of something that actually satisfies genre kind of um, conventions and is consistent. And then the third one is you write it, you revise it, write it for the audience, which is, um, you, you know, you make it something that somebody would actually want to want to read and you're trying to relate it so that like, not only is it your vision and it's something that's consistent, but it's also something that, you know, is attractive to people. And it seems like those kind of map roughly, but not entirely on your like uh, four stages. And I wondered if you wanted to talk about your four stages, maybe like in relation to that. Yeah, I mean, I would say I agree with those for the most part. The, the biggest thing, as I said earlier, is separate the writer from the editor. The thing that um, is maybe not saying is like market and promote stage, right? So you have to be kind of thinking about that. And the difference in, in me and, and some other writers might be that, like what I said earlier, is I'm trying to see this thing to the very end. I think for a long time, for forever, up until maybe like a year or two ago, all creatives want to get to a stage where they can hand the keys over to somebody else. You want to get this thing done and then wash your hands of it and find, you know, and then some great producer or some great editors or some great marketing team is going to do everything for you. And that's just not the way the world is anymore today. So I think like you need to know how to sell this thing to some degree. And some of that comes from, you know, me wanting, I want to write movies, but also have been a copywriter for 10 years. I worked at ClickFunnels for a while. I wrote copy for people like Russell Brunson, Tony Robbins, Grant Cardone. So I understand these things, but you, you have to kind of see all that going in. Even if it is a very personal project, there's got to be something there. Usually what personal means is like, the plot is something you can sell, but the theme is unique to you. The theme mm. is fathers and sons or whatever it is. I think maybe that's the only real you know, extra step I see is that like, even if you have some great PR team, you need to kind of have an idea yourself of what that's going to look like. I love that. Yeah. And the PR team is definitely going to like be asking you. I mean, I'm working with the PR team about my next book, which comes out in August. And, uh, and she, we've been kind of talking about like, what are, what are the things that you specifically James can do that nobody else can do? You know, like, what, like the articles that you can write that we can place somewhere that, that would promote the book or the, the um, you, you know, pivoting off like the other things that I do in my life. Uh, but yeah, it, you have, you can't just like feed it into the promotion machine and hope that it's going to do its work for you. Unless like you've, I mean, there are things that they can do that you can't they can definitely lean on that as much as one can, but also keep in mind that you have to do some of it yourself or use them as a force multiplier for things that you can only do yourself. Yeah. When I started kind of, you know, guessing on podcasts, which is really recently, like, like I said, I was kind of in the shadows. I was a ghostwriter, marketing team, stuff like that. I've just kind of started social media and email lists and everything else. But I just hired a VA and taught her because I, you know, I see so many PR messages come to me from people who want to be on my show. I'm just on these different lists from like Netflix companies like that. I know exactly what they're going to say. So I, I do have some, you know, insider inside baseball there. Like it's just me and a girl in Venezuela and I tell her what to write. <laughs> and the first like three podcasts I was on, they were like, man, your marketing team seems great. I was like, there's no marketing team. It's just like, me. <laughs> I'm giving this book away for free. I'm just kind of like figuring out as I go. I love what you said before. I just want to let that go by that the pot might be something you can sell, but the theme has to be unique to you. Yeah. What it means that's yours is more so than the pot is yours. That's the reality of the, that. That's really what people mean with write what you know. It's not like I'm a cab driver. I write about cab drivers. It's like there's some specific, you know, universal yet specific thing to you that you're writing about. Yeah, right. The thing that puts butts in seats is like a, 
a great concept. Like, oh, I really want to read this book that's about like, and like, you know, I, I don't like some high concept thing. But then as Matt says, it's like, and I think it's, this is uh, kind of adjacent to what we're saying right now. Like, Matt, what do you say? Like, it's a concept that gets people to buy the ticket, but it's like the characters. And I suppose also, as we're saying now, the theme that causes people to actually enjoy the thing. They forget the premise as soon as they sit down. Uh, what they really want is to get involved with these characters and I guess with this theme. Right, Matt? Well, I think I think that the plot is what gets people to buy the ticket. The characters are what get people to fall in love. And then the theme is what makes it meaningful. Yeah, yeah. I like this idea that there are somewhat universal rules for how to write bluff characters. That's what my second book is about. But the theme is unique to you. You know, when I got my big deal of Hollywood managers and they fell in love with this thriller script I'd written and they sent it wide and it almost sold, but it never sold. It was a high concept, very commercial script that was about a, it was sort of a horror movie about this sort of mind control villain. But like the mind control villain was totally based on my college roommate. And <laughs> You've <laughs> never talked about this, Matt. I never have. We should, we should go ahead and do, we should go ahead and do an episode about nerve. Cause it was, it was my biggest deal screenplay that in the that in the on turn screenplay but um i think you would hate it <laughs> but uh, you would chances are it hasn't <laughs> aged well in terms of it's got certain uh it sort of reflects the pickup artist culture of the time to a certain extent in a way that's way that's very critical of it but the hero is not as critical of it as you would hope in a script written today but it definitely was a case where it's meaning to me the degree to which there was a personal trauma that I was transforming into a commercial story. I think that was the value of it. I think that I was bringing bringing myself to the theme more than I was bringing myself to anything else. I think sometimes it, it pays to like believe certain kind of mythological lies. In your book, Brock, you're talking about Elizabeth Gilbert, uh, how she said like, oh, there's these ideas that float around. And if you make yourself receptive to them, they'll come and they'll nestle in with you. But if you don't, if you don't like that, that idea will forsake you and find another person. Right. Yeah. I think I, I, is it Rick Rubin is the famous music. I think I've heard him say something similar too. I don't know if I personally believe that. I think maybe it's more just like, it's the time and place for this type of story. I mean, maybe it's oh, that, but there's yeah, some no. combo, right? Oh yeah. I, I, what, my broader point was that it's not true. It's obviously false that right. like ideas are, but like it believing in this obviously false myth can kind of, get you over a hump and make you do something. And I have a similar like thing, like if I put something personal in it, like something that is like divulges something about me that I don't want anybody else to know, or, or if I make this kind of sacrifice, then the gods see that sacrifice and smile upon it. What's really happening is that if you write from your gut and personally from your heart, it's going to be better writing. But it's hard to really make yourself believe in that because it's such a, maybe we've heard it so many times that it doesn't really like, hit like anymore but if you try if you say to yourself no there are these beings they're immaterial elements that are like watching over me and if i give this sacrifice of my own self my own life they will make this successful like that myth somehow causes me more readily to make that to write more personally like we're all repulsed by ai writing right mm -hmm. like a, a machine writing i mean one of the reasons like the gods won't look at it because it's written by a machine uh, but the gods will look at something that is written by a human because it's coming from their gut. And the more you write like an AI, like you're writing just towards the mark, you're just like doing an exercise, the less the gods will look at it, find favor with it, and clear the way in the world for it to be successful. I I'm saying things that are obviously false, but there are things that work on us in a human way and motivate us in a human way. I mean, I will say that it is sometimes literally true that if I do not capitalize on this idea, someone else will, like writing a biopic of Alan Turing. That is something where, like, I failed to actually strike when the iron was hot, and then someone else yeah. had the idea and sold it and made a million dollars and won an Oscar. So sometimes that is literally true. But I think that it's helpful to always believe that it's true, that if I don't seize this idea, some, it's going to land in someone else's lap. Because sometimes it turns out to be literally true, but, but, but Matt, it always what I need turns to say, out to be figuratively true. But yeah, what I mean to say is that by Elizabeth Gilbert mythologizing it and making the idea be like a, a demon that's kind of floating around, like it causes us more likely to take her advice, or at least me, because fundamentally, we are irrational religious people. We're just barely keeping the, the, the pot 
on that kettle from boiling over all the time as we pretend to be rational, normal people who have reasonable beliefs. But the things that really motivate us are these odd little superstitions spiritualizing the world in that way. So, I mean, I love Elizabeth Gilbert's idea of the martyr and the trickster and thinking of yourself as a trickster. But the idea of sitting down to write and going like, I'm a trickster or martyr. James, you're a prolific novelist. You had a novel come out last year. You've got another novel coming out this year. To what degree do you see yourself as a trickster or a murderer when you write? I think it's both. I sweat over it maybe more than I should. But I find that when I'm stuck, I have to be mischievous to get out of it and not be diligent. Like I have to make a choice that seems like, oh, there's no way I can pull this off. And then that's the thing that gets me through it, like making little dares of myself. I think that leads to more interesting choices and maybe more unlikely choices and maybe choices that are harder to sell uh, or maybe choices that are harder to pull off. And so therefore, the chances of it being successful, like artistically successful, aren't as high. However, that's the way that I'm able to keep writing by like making those challenges. I, I think like, like a lot of artists are like that. Like I don't think Spielberg could, like the reason why Raiders of the Lost Ark was so good is because he like, was giving himself this kind of challenge. You, you know, like, oh my God, 1941 tanked. Okay, I'm just going to quick and dirty make this 1940s serial. I have to shoot it in 80 days. I, I do all these elaborate stunts that I've never kind of done before. And you can feel like, you know, the joy of discovery and somebody feeling out their powers and saying, oh my God, I could do this, I could do this. Whereas like late period Spielberg, like he knows too much, you know? And so it, it, like it, when he's not kind of really stretching his wings and doing something that he never felt he could do before, uh, he's, he gets boring. So like Bridge of Spies is just like a genre piece and you didn't like it, but we both liked the Fablemans. That's because he was like surprising himself and trying something that he felt maybe he couldn't do and he had to wait for both of his parents to die to do it. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I think that definitely helped him. So James, do you write fiction every day? No, I don't. I, like, I, I, I wish I could. But like I have a bunch of other responsibilities that I, I can't, but I, I do it as much as I can. And I'm in that mode right now uh, at this point in summer. And like uh, I'm going to be taking a two and a half weeks. So I'm going to be away from my family in Utah. I'm going to be teaching a class. But it's only going to take half my day. But for the rest of the day, I'm just going to be able, I'm going to be writing alone in a hotel room. And I can't tell you how much I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. Brock, are you writing fiction at this point in your life? And are you writing fiction every day? Screenplays, not every day. I'm, um, I kind of move around in such a way that like, you know, I want to write a book every two years. I want to write two scripts per year. So that's like the big thing. A lot of that's outlining or thinking about it. And then if I've outlined enough, the script actually happens pretty quick. Yeah, that was never the case for me. Yeah, I've stopped writing fiction for the most part. I really tried to make myself write fiction every day. There was a while, uh, and I mentioned this, you can't see it anymore, but I mentioned this in my blog series on running every day. I tried to, but I tried to turn my blog readers into taskmasters, and I put up a Google calendar that would be my record of how much I'd written every day that would be in the sidebar of my blog, and that's never good to set up an antagonistic relationship with someone else. I've also tried this with my wife, like, okay, come home from work every day and yell at me for how much I wrote today. <laughs> and, uh, that's not a good, healthy relationship to have with one's wife. But I always had just a tremendous amount of time doing outside discipline. I would make myself write three pages every day and then I would reduce it down to just one page every day, you know, where I'd be like going to bed at night, like, okay, I didn't write a page today. I have to just write one page and it can be really crappy. And then I would try to negotiate with myself and say, no, well, I can do outlining today or I can revise an old script today or I can do whatever I have to do. I found it just really hard. Ultimately, I was very prolific when I was at Columbia and I was sort of in, that created a good mindset for me. And then as soon as I left Columbia and graduated, it was tremendously hard to get myself to write every day. And then eventually I just sort of petered out and started working on other stuff and writing nonfiction and doing stuff like that. But I talk about my methods. I talk about, now I use a program called Freedom, which crashes the internet so that the internet can't be accessed on your computer until you either set it to restore at a certain time or you reboot your computer, which is onerous. Have Do you guys work with the internet on your computer or do you find some way to disconnect? It kind of feels like more like anything, even with a computer, those, and I, I love positive constraints. I think it's so helpful, but it's usually like an actual person creates my accountability. So like I'll write I write some screenplays by myself. Like I'll write 
pilot episodes. I, I, I strive to write in the style like Taylor Sheridan, like old Western kind of stuff. Then I've got a partner I write horror movies with. So we meet every week. So whatever our next thing, we end every meeting with some kind of call to action. Next week, we're going to have this done. And we meet literally every week. Uh, we also host a show on YouTube for creative screenwriting together where we kind of dissect some of this stuff. But that accountability, like you have to get something done because you're meeting, you know, on Thursday. So it's got to be there. A lot of that means like, all right, Thursday morning is blocked out for that as I'm very last minute. But I've got so many deadlines and accountability and different things that I have to do. Like it all kind of works out. And I used to like, ah, oh, why do I wait so long? But finally, I'm just like, well, I do wait and it does work out. So I believe it's going to work out because it worked out a hundred times before, a thousand times before. Again, you say most of us spend too much time on what is urgent, not enough time on what is important. If you're like, oh, I needed a certain sense of urgency to make it happen and I feel bad about that, but you know, it's fine. I've learned that that works for me. Then you lose the sense of urgency and, and you're like, oh, I'll be fine. I can put it off to the last second. And then, and then that, you know, once you, once you realize it's not a thing to panic about, then you stop panicking and then you stop doing it. I haven't yet, but I think, you know, a lot of that is just like your own internal dialogue telling you to wait or, or push or hang on. It's just, I mean, if you can just sit down and start doing it, like that's the, I mean, I know that like, it sounds like overly simple, but like, usually that's all it is. Like, uh, so I, I do these interviews, creative screenwriting. I'll talk to somebody for 30 minutes. So my podcast is creative principles, creative screenwriting will buy certain interviews from me and then we'll publish them in a print article. For whatever reason, like those are something I just always wait for. I'm like, ah, oh, it's going to take me an hour and a half to, to transcribe and write that and everything. Like whenever I just start doing it, it's usually not that hard. And I feel like most things are like that. I mean, nine times out of 10, just kind of starting it, it's not that hard. So like taking action is like the neuroscience way to just kind of get going. Whether most of the time you're just talking yourself out of something you haven't even started yet. As for my thing, do I have the internet off? I don't, but I kind of don't really look at it much except for one thing. Uh, this is very odd, but... Sometimes I'll write something and you need to have that time pass before you could look at it properly. Right. And I need, but, but I don't have the time. So I keep open in my browser, this extremely primitive video game from 1982 uh, <laughs> that I put that I have it on an Apple II kind of uh, emulator. And I go and I know exactly how the game works. It's not going to surprise me. I play it for two minutes. Uh, and and uh, it's also something that kind of connects me to feeling like I'm in fifth grade because I first played the game in fifth grade and I go back and I feel like I've like uh, a week has passed and I'm able to look at what I just wrote uh, w with refreshed eyes. That's um, funny. You can submit, you can cram a whole week of being away from your script. Well, I mean, maybe not, maybe not a whole week, but like definitely like more time than has passed. You know, That's funny. the game is Aztec. It's, it's very primitive game. But um, one other thing I was going to say is like, we're talking about like, oh, we're, we're producing all this stuff. And like, I, I, this is kind of going against what I said earlier. Like, oh, well, I, they didn't like the first thing I had. So I, I what about this second thing? We were talking about like, oh, we're churning out all these scripts and stories and everything in one year. And it reminds me of this tweet that I can't get out of my mind. And I looked for it while you were talking and I found it immediately. This tweet from some guy named Josh Fidus. Martin Scorsese, quote, John Cassavetes told me to write what I know. So I said I had this script, Mean Streets, I've been working on for five years. He told me that was the one. So I spent another year working on it, end quote. And then writers on Twitter, quote, I wrote 19 scripts this year, end quote. Yeah. <laughs> and I think there's, there's, I mean, with all this productivity talk we're talking about, I think it's great. But I think we also have to keep that tweet in mind. That's yeah, I think, I've seen Cal Newport recently. Uh, he's the essentialism guy. I think he talks about slow productivity. And I've kind of tried to adopt some of that. Like I do have very much results oriented goals in mind, but as long as you're doing the process, like, I think that's way more important. Like the results are going to come. You just kind of have to know what the process, the video game theory of relativity is really unique. I'm wondering if you're like pushing yourself into flow state with the game or something like that. That's like almost like hidden to you, you know, maybe because a game is a game that I know very well. I just played at the highest difficulty level and I'm just kind of like, it, it's so easy for me to play. Uh, but it's also a game that is very unfair. You could just die unexpectedly at many points. It kind of forces me out of it uh, a lot. I'm a master at it, and it's unfair. And so then I, I, I won't play it for a half hour. Like, almost 
always I'll die within three minutes. That's funny. It's the game, Matt, that I'm referring to in Dare to Know uh, yes. when he's playing that haunted video game. Brock, I was just going through other quotes from your book. Um, I, you've got a quote that made me feel terrible about myself. It says, <laughs> when failure is expensive, plan carefully. When failure is cheap, act quickly, writes Atomic Habits author James Clear. So like when I was a young man, I was like writing these movies that were period pieces and then I would make them. I made three period piece movies on credit cards, essentially, uh, with <laughs> debt that I've only recently paid off in my 40s. And like I never wrote a novel. <laughs> and like <laughs> making period piece films is a good example of failure being expensive so you got to plan carefully but i was i was acting quickly when i wanted to make period pieces of my films and i was acting slowly when it came to actually doing something like writing a novel that would have cost me absolutely nothing and might have been more productive <laughs> but uh, so that that quote really really sort of bit me in the ass so we should probably wrap up before too Wait, long well, before here. we wrap up matt why can't we see these movies why why don't you upload them into youtube Oh, I don't want to have them on YouTube, but I'll, uh, I can have a private screening for you. What was the period? What was it like? Belle Epoque? Like, what was it? The Civil I made, War? I made one movie that was set in 1950 with excellent production design. So I spent way too much money on it. That was actually shot on film. But then I made two movies shot on video that were set in a vague, noirish period, you know, sort of vaguely in the 1940s. And uh, they were both features. So I'm making period features. Wow. <laughs> on video in the 90s it was unwise but uh, that was what i wanted to do but uh, uh let me sort of close i have so many quotes that i would just love to just read out all these quotes from your book brock but i feel like maybe the best quote to end on is as the chinese proverb says the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago the second best time is now and that's a good that's a great quote that i wouldn't necessarily think to apply to writing but it is great to apply to writing where that is one thing that is so hard about especially when you're writing, we're all um, older, I think. And I think that uh, when you're writing, it's like, uh, you know, I should have written this 20 years ago. And I'm like, <laughs> hey, that was the best time to write this was 20 years ago. The second best time is now. And that's true about planting a tree. That's true about writing. And that's true. I think that's, that's sort of the secret of staring at a blank page. That's sort of what we keep coming back to today is the sort of tyranny of the blank page. And knowing that like i shouldn't i shouldn't have a blank page i should have i should be on page 200 instead of staring at the blank page but the second best time to do that is now and really it's just like a, it's a mindset of like taking action making some mistakes i mean maybe don't go out and, and make a period piece as like one of your first films but that's that is one way to start and that just definitely like you learn from that no matter what though success or failure you I'm sure it felt good at the time to be doing it. You know, it did. So the whole idea is just like, there really is no tomorrow. Don't wait. I can't tell you how many diets I've started on Monday or something. <laughs> you're just not serious about it. Right. If you're really going to start something, you're going to start it right that second. And sometime probably in the last like five years, like it's funny because a friend will say, Hey, let's get brunch Saturday morning. And I'll ask my wife, I'm like, Hey, are we going to lunch Saturday? So-and-so said something. And she was like, Brock, you're the only person who does what they say. And it just took <laughs> me like that. It took me years. I mean, I've always like, you know, some of that is, is being like personable and accountability to people, but doing it for yourself, starting now, starting tomorrow, you know, you can start jotting down ideas tonight You can get up early tomorrow, write whatever it is. But you like if you're waiting till I'm gonna start on January first or some of that mindset, it's just bull. You know, it's not like it's not real. Like you're not really serious. You know, and then you start like, I've got a seven day streak. And it's like, why are you counting? So you can quit and say you did pretty good for thirty days. Like just start, quit counting, do it every day. Don't worry about when you fail. Don't take two days off in a row if you do make a mistake. Just like set two or three rules for yourself that are going to work for you and your situation. And then kind of just go in that direction and, and you'll figure it out along the way. You're only going to figure it out by taking action. You're going to move so much faster, just learning things. Like I would imagine making, you know, some of those early films you made, that was its own film school. Like that, like that put you oh, so totally far was. ahead. And it in was much better than the things. actual film school I later paid <laughs> way too much right. money for. <laughs> right. But yeah, I say in my, uh, in one of my how to write everyday pieces, I'd say early on when I was trying to get my fuck you money, my goal was to stop writing. I'm like, I want to write enough that I can stop writing. 
And that was completely self-destructive. <laughs> and right. guaranteed, I would never succeed. And your goal has to be to keep writing. I want to write enough that I can keep writing. I want to write enough that people will want more from me and I will keep producing it. And your whole goal as a writer is to has to be, I'm going to write so I can keep writing. And I think that is sort of what I learned the hard way. And I think uh, we should end this by uh, wholeheartedly recommending Brock's book, Ink by the Barrel. And I think, it, it again, it's a, it's a great compliment to Matt's book. I think they're, they're books that should be side by side on the shelf. And I can't believe you're giving it away for free, Brock. Yeah, it's kind of, you know, I worked for people like Pace Morby and Russell Brunson, and, and they're so sor- service-minded, like working for those guys so long. And, you know, like I said, Bard Authority, I want to... I want to build trust. There's a reason why I'm doing it. I want to show, I gave away a free challenge. I'm giving away the book. So if you go to brockswinson.com, you get the PDF and the audiobook that I recorded. I want to just put those things out there, show people that I'm like serious about a career in writing. You know, ideally they'll buy the second book in a year or two from now, but you know, I'm, I'm here for the long haul. I want to teach people how to write. I want to teach people how to be prolific and I want to lead by example. Okay. Awesome. Well, that's awesome. Well, thank you so much for the book. I really enjoyed it. It really showed me new ways of looking at things. And like James said, it made me want to put the book down and go write every day. Uh, By the way, uh, for the audience, we only really uh, focused on part one here, but part two uh, voice and part three process are also really worth your time. Like you're talking about keeping a commonplace book, which is something I realize I do, but it's spread out among small scraps of paper and my notes app and stuff like that. So it's, uh, but like, uh, just uh, there's a lot of other great stuff in this book that we have not covered. And uh, it's only like 42,000 words. It's a very quick read, uh, but it's extremely motivating. And I, I really want to explicitly put my like mark of recommendation, like pro uh, this book that Brock wrote. Yes. I, 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 I want to be very clear. This is a really good book. Yeah. Short but dense quotes I was pulling out on every page. Okay, Brock. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. This is a fun episode. This is less torturous than our previous three episodes. where we, uh, Hopefully the editing process will be less torturous as well. And we can get this thing out. I'm hoping to get this thing out uh, sooner rather than later. So everyone should go read Brock's free book and go to brockspinson.com. And uh, everyone should read James's novels, his recent, his novel, Order of Hotfish, his recent novel, Dare to Know, and his upcoming novel, which might be coming out shortly after this podcast comes out, Ride of the Tornado. And of course, you should get my book, Secrets of Story and Secrets of Character. All right, everybody. So let's go ahead and say goodbye. Thanks again to Brock. We will see you soon, America. Goodbye. Thanks again. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Secrets of Story podcast. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on the Secrets of Story podcast in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. Find out about James's novels, Bride of the Tornado, Dare to Know, and The Order of Oddfish at jameskennedy.com. Our music is by Haddon Kime. Our logo is by Jessica Friday. See you next time.